0: God, our Father, we humble ourselves in your presence. We simply ask that you would speak to us. We do ask that your spirit would lead in this time and that you would breathe life into us as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, last week we came to the end of Jesus's bread of life sermon in John chapter six. And today we turn to John six, verses 60 through 71. And we get to see the effect of Jesus' sermon upon the hearers. We live in a results-oriented culture. We want to see and measure the impact of a social media post or a strategic initiative or a ministry effort. And what we get to see today is the impact of Jesus' sermon. And quite honestly, it's a bit disheartening, actually. Look at verse 66 with me in the text. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Isn't that a bit surprising? His following is diminished and substantially so. And let's remember that the many here in verse 66 who turned back are not just the crowd, but they are identified as his disciples. These were people who had witnessed his miracles, who had at least heard some of his teaching, and who had made some kind of a decision to follow him. And they're the ones, we're told, after hearing the sermon, who turned back and no longer walked with him. That wasn't the only response, however, there was another response, and uh, after many of these disciples turned back, Jesus turns to the twelve and says, what about you? Do you want to go away as well? And this prompts Peter's great confession of faith. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's not unlike the confession that Peter makes at Caesarea Philippi in the Synoptic Gospels when Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter there says that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in both cases, he speaks this awe-inspiring truth about the identity of Jesus in the midst of a moment when Jesus is being misjudged. So as we examine this text this evening, we'll observe some central lessons about gospel ministry and we'll come to see the fundamental insight that produces such divergent responses to Jesus. So our first lesson is this. Jesus does not shift the content of what he says To make it more palatable to those who hear. Notice the response to the sermon in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we're not exactly told what his disciples think is hard about what they've just heard. It could be that Jesus says he's the bread of life and the key to salvation. It could be that he said he came down from heaven. It could be the fact that he says he's giving his flesh for the life of the world. Or it might be that he says his his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. As one commentator memorably memorably put it, referring to himself as more of a meal than a man. It is likely some combination of these things, of course, that causes them to say this is a hard saying. It is hard for them to hear because, honestly, if you think about it, we get used to this. But if you think about what Jesus has said in this sermon in John 6, it's, it's astonishing. And they think that he's just a guy from up the road, basically. Jesus is counterintuitive. At this point as he is at so many other points. We might expect him to be more sensitive, to be less offensive, to try to remove every barrier possible. And there is of course a a sense in which Jesus in his ministry is doing just that. He's come from heaven to earth to reveal God to us. He's gone to seek and save the lost. He is uh, a colorful image of the father running after the lost son to, to see if he's coming back home in Luke chapter 15. So Jesus is trying to overcome barriers, but he doesn't change the message to make it more palatable. He is the bread of life who came down from heaven. And so he says so he is the one who will give his flesh for the life of the world. So he says so he is the one on whom we must depend for our very life and breath. And so he says so he communicates the truth about himself, however hard to swallow that truth may be. And it is hard in many ways. And I say this is counterintuitive. We tend, when we think about reaching others with Jesus, we tend to try to lower the bar as much as we can so that people can just step over it into faith. But it seems that Jesus again and again is actually raising the bar. He wants us to count the cost. He says that if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says that we cannot be his disciple without losing control of our lives. And even the simple faith that is an encouraged response throughout the Gospel of John entails a surrender of control, a handing over of our lives to him, the one on whom we must now depend. And I think we need to learn from Jesus on this point. It is true that we can easily erect barriers to Jesus, usually culturally constructed barriers, that get in the way of someone's path to him such as pride or inflexibility around non-essentials or even the subtle message that you need to look like this or dress like this or think like this in order to come to Jesus. And we do need to be mindful of how to remove unnecessary barriers to entry or engagement with Jesus. At the same time I wonder if the words and approach of Jesus in John 6 square very well with our coffee shop imitating comfortable seating full service model of church that is prevalent in our nation at least we want to woo people to win people to bring them into faith in any way that we can and of course we should do that and reduce every barrier that we can every offense to jesus that we possibly can but i think we can go too far down this path at times such that all the accoutrements ...around us in the church can start to impact or, or uh, muddy or overcome even the message of the gospel. Soon we can talk less of sin and more about our potential. We can preach for success in life instead of about Christ and him crucified. We can preach for our own comfort and the, the ways to mitigate pain instead of for Christ's glory. We preach plausible words of wisdom instead of in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And yes, down this road may be bigger and better, causing less offense to modern ears, but it is a sure way to to zap the power from the church. I can't help but think of Paul's warning to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Jesus' preaching and ministry serves as a corrective to this ever-present tendency in the life of the church. He speaks the truth plainly and directly, never diluting it, never trying to be more palatable to the hearers. He's not really interested in attracting crowds, but he's interested in making disciples. So his disciples heard him in this case and said in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Our second point is why. Why is it that Jesus is not willing to, to change his message, to make it more palatable. And it's simple, really. It's because this was the message that now leads to life. Jesus wouldn't diminish his preaching because these words were about himself and these were the means by which the spirit and life would come. So he says to those disgruntled disciples in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The spirit gives life and the flesh is of no help. That is the natural man, the in Adam humanity is no help. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. As Calvin says, quote, whoever confines his whole attention to the earthly nature of the flesh will find it in nothing but what is dead, end quote. Without the spirit, we cannot come to life. But the spirit brings new life, brings regeneration through the very flesh of Christ. That Christ gives for the life of the world. And then by means of the words that center on the enfleshed and incarnate Jesus. How do we receive the spirit? It is through the hearing of the word. So that Jesus can say the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Or as Peter says later in this text in verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. Consider Galatians chapter three verse 2. Let me ask you only this, Paul says, "Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It was of course by hearing with faith or the hearing of faith, that the Spirit came. That is to say that the gospel about Jesus and him crucified, giving his flesh for the life of the world. When that gospel is preached, people hear it and come to life. First Thessalonians 1 verses four and five, Paul writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. These words about Jesus are the vehicle through which God's life-giving spirit comes to his people, transforms people and brings them from death to life. So, quite simply, these words cannot be changed. They can't be watered down. Jesus speaks plainly and truthfully about himself because this is the means by which the Holy Spirit brings about regeneration and brings life to people. That's why Paul can say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for everyone who believes. We we don't change the witness to Jesus. Jesus enfleshed, Jesus crucified, Jesus raised, Jesus ascended. In fact, what makes Paul so angry and upset as he opens the letter to the Galatians in chapter 1 of that letter is that others have distorted the gospel of Christ. And Paul says, look, there is no other gospel. So he says twice about those people, let them be accursed. Because they've changed the message. They've changed it to actually make it more palatable in their day. They put it in the currency of the works of the law, which in that day were the way that you got social credit was the way that you became a person of good standing. And so they made the gospel associated with that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This has to do with the crucified Messiah and that alone. And it's our reception of this reality that makes us acceptable to God. Don't change this message. We must tenaciously hold to this gospel because these words are spirit and life. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 24. but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says it's not palatable, not to the Jews. It's a stumbling block, not to the Greeks. It's folly, but we preach Christ crucified. We proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God uses these words to bring about eternal life in the hearers who respond by faith. This is how the Spirit works through the apostolic testimony of the church into the world as we preach it, as we bear witness to it in our lives and relationships, in the day-to-day of our lives. This is how the Spirit works. And our testimony is based on Jesus' testimony, a testimony that was authenticated by the Father, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father speaks from, from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. These words cannot be changed. So then our third point is if Jesus speaks hard things and does so because they are the means by which the Spirit brings life, then he willingly accepts the reality of people walking away. Jesus let the rich young ruler walk away sad. And Jesus accepts that these these disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. I'm sure it grieves him deeply to see this response to this sermon that he's preached in John 6. And I'm also sure that we can be confident that the one who came to seek and save the lost will continue to seek those various disciples who had turned away on that day. The end of the story hadn't been written. That is his aim. But Jesus does let them walk away. We think of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. His ministry, this is the call narrative about the prophet Isaiah, his ministry was to preach the people of God down to a stump which we're told would become the holy seed through which God's redemptive work would continue. I remember as a young minister hearing an older pastor talk about his upcoming move to Florida to take take care of a church to begin to be their pastor whose longtime senior minister had just had a major moral failing and had left the church and the church was in a lot of disarray. And he spoke of Hebrews 12, verses 26 and 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And I'll never forget this older minister, wise man, who loved the Lord, saying to all of us, this small group of us who were listening to him, he said, my job is to go and preach that church down to the things that cannot be shaken. It was a powerful reminder in a sense of what Jesus and his sermon and the response to his sermon shows us here. In fact, some scholars think the primary purpose of this epilogue to the Bread of Life sermon is that it's about the purification of the church, the weeding out And honestly, if we think about the biblical witness on this point, there is some compelling evidence. In the parable of the sower, for example, three out of the four places where the seed is sown become places of people who actually fall away. People who would have called themselves disciples in one sense, they fall away. There are the famous warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And then there are those bits in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the many who have prophesied in my name who will come to me on that day and and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he'll say, look, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I have no part in you. And again, the surprising thing about all of these examples that I've just listed is that those who turn away are those who would identify as disciples of Jesus, in some way at least, before they turn away. It's a sobering reality that the response to his sermon here causes us to reflect on. We do need to balance it, though, of course, with Jesus's words in verse 39 of his sermon. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. There is a tension here. Yes, there is deep assurance, rightly so, from the doctrines of divine grace and sovereignty. But there is, biblically speaking, at the same time, the reality of always being on our knees before God, never presuming upon his grace. Presumption never has a place in the heart of a disciple. In fact, even after we get Peter's wonderful confession of faith on behalf of the twelve in this text, we learn of Judas in verses 70 through 70 and 71. This one chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, whom Jesus says was a devil. This one who would betray him. It seems that even being one of the twelve was no sure sign of saving Grace. All of this, I would suggest, means that there is a real kind of coming to Jesus and there is a coming to Jesus that is not real. And remember, actually, that that's how Jesus begins his sermon. You're seeking after me, he says, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's the wrong motive. You're coming to me so long as you're getting what you think you need. You're coming so long as you get what you want. You're coming so long as it's working for you. But that's the wrong reason to come. Instead, we come for his sake, because of who he is, the Lord of glory, because he is life and we cling to him for life, because he is the son of God and come what may, we know that he is all that we need. Jesus processes these, this significant exodus from his ministry, this persistent unbelief which he notes in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, he processes this with an affirmation of the sovereign grace of his father. He refers to this again in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. That is his confidence in his mission, much like ours in the mission that we continue of Jesus's, rests in the father, who is in control over not only the mission of Jesus, but the mission of his church subsequently. So again, as we saw last week, let's be fervent and prayerful, but let's also be open-handed and reassured. God's hand is the one that we are trusting in this work of ministry and mission. Though many walked away, not all did, as we saw at the beginning. And this brings us to our fourth and final point, Why this difference in responses? Why this bifurcation? Why did some, the twelve in particular, stay? What is essential to responding with faith? And I would suggest to you that this brings us to the heart of the Gospel of John, actually. It is the identity of Jesus. This is the burden of the Gospel. One of the distinctive features of the Gospel according to John. It is the question of where is Jesus from? What is his origin? that continues to come about throughout these 21 chapters. Consider just a few places in chapter one, John the Baptist says, the one who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That raises the question of origin, the beginning. He was before John the Baptist, but born after him. Later in chapter one, Nathaniel's unbelief in Jesus is rooted in the fact that Jesus comes from Nazareth. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, I know where this man is from. Nothing good comes from there. Or again, earlier in the Bread of Life sermon in John 6, they grumble against him. Why? Verse 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Look, we know who this is. We know where he grew up. We know his parents. Do they? In the next chapter, in chapter 7, thinking about his origin, Is what fuels the rejection of the people from Jerusalem their rejection of Jesus they say but we know where this man comes from we know where he comes from and when the Christ appears no one will know where he comes from do they that's the question that keeps reverberating throughout the gospel of John the healed blind man in chapter 9 says if this man were not from God he could do nothing where is he from is he from Nazareth or is he from heaven he says he's come down from heaven And it's this question of the origin of Jesus that is central throughout the Gospel of John. And we know this, not least of which, by virtue of the prologue, the beginning of the the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John signals from the very beginning of his Gospel, this is a person. We're dealing with a person who's not an ordinary human being. This is the Eternal Son, made flesh who's come to reveal the Father to us, the one who is at the Father's side. He has come to make him known. And it's this insight, seeing that Jesus is not just a man, but he is the eternal Son who's come into the flesh to come among us, to bring us into life. It's that insight that changes everything. So this is the whole point of the gospel. As John tells us his purpose in chapter 20, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to know the unique identity of Jesus. And it's this question. Is he God or is he a man? Is he the son of God or is he not? If he is, then what he is saying, though hard, makes all kinds of sense. What God in the flesh would say, we must sustain our lives by feeding upon him. That he is the bread of life, that he gives his, life, his, his flesh for the life of the world. These things make sense if Jesus is, in fact, the eternal son. Who shares in the divine identity. But if he's not God in the flesh. Then of course this is a hard saying. Who can receive it as the disciples say. So it's that issue of who is Jesus. That causes one response versus another. Jesus says to those disciples in verses 61 and 62. Do you take offense at this? And Of course we understand why. They think they know who he is. They think he's this carpenter from Nazareth. The son of Joseph Joseph and Mary. Charles Wesley famously wrote, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Indeed, Jesus was veiled in flesh. Being a man like them. And that was certainly the primary cause of their stumbling. So it's interesting what he says to them in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to see me after my crucifixion and resurrection in my ascension, returning to my heavenly position and glory? Then you would know who I am, who I really am. Not this boy from Nazareth, but the eternal son become flesh. If you would see me, you would believe. It's this that Peter's great confession at the end of our text acknowledges in verses 68 and 69. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We get it. We see who you are. Where else would we go? We see that you are the Holy One of God. That you've come down from above. Who is this man Jesus? Consider his life. His love, his sacrifice, his truth, his power, and and top it all off with his resurrection, which Paul says in Romans 1, unambiguously declares him to be the son of God in power. He is, in fact, the lamb of God, the son of God, the holy one of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who gives his flesh for the life of the world. And we know this by faith. Do you notice the order of Peter's confession? We have believed. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Believing is first, throwing ourselves upon Him, handing our lives over to Jesus. That is the invitation of Jesus always to all of us as His creatures. And it's this handing over that produces the kind of knowing about Jesus and His identity that seals the truth about Him on our hearts as we throw ourselves upon His grace and mercy. Faith, that is, produces genuine knowledge. The entire development of Christian thought in the earliest centuries of the church, a development wonderfully recounted in Robert Lewis Wilkins' book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. This development rested upon the reality of the self-involving nature of the life of faith. The tradition of Christian thinking grew out of a deep, intimate relationship with the living God. And it was out of that faith and worship that we began to understand more about his identity and nature and purposes in the world as we reflected upon scripture and the word in those early centuries as the body of Christ did that. But the first thing that happened was one's heart was set ablaze with love for God as he is revealed in Jesus. And this new relation then is what produces knowledge about the reality of Jesus and deepens our assurance, undergirds Peter's confession. That is to say that we cannot know God in a clinically detached fashion. We cannot remain unengaged and come to know him as we would read a biography about someone in history and simply come to know the details of that personality in in the subject. No, we believe and our hearts come alive and we come to know God in deeper ways. Certainly our minds are engaged in this, of course, but there is more. Listen to Augustine in book 13 of Confessions. To whatever place I go, I am drawn to it by love. By your gift, the Holy Ghost, we are set aflame and borne aloft, and the fire within carries us upward. It is your fire, your good fire, that sets us aflame and carries us upward. Justin Martyr, he got that name because he was he was killed for his faith in Jesus in the second century. He was converted through a conversion with an older man during a walk on the beach and he says a flame was kindled in my soul and I was seized by love. Peter says that they have believed their hearts have been grabbed and they have come to know about the identity of Jesus the Holy One of God. And if this is who Jesus is, if he is the Holy One of God, with this conviction clear in our hearts, Peter says a beautiful statement with that kind of clarity, one that addresses all humanity and confronts us. And with this, I want to close. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Who or what else can save us? Where else shall we turn? To our friends and family, to our accomplishments, to social justice or anti-racist activism, to nationalism, to atheism or scientism or Confucianism or the millions of other isms that we can turn to and which by which we are surrounded. Certainly, while some of these are rightly included in the life of faith, the robust life of faith, none of them bring us life. None of them liberate from the power of sin. None of them bring true and lasting peace. When I was a young man, a close friend of mine was killed in a kayaking accident. And I remember at the funeral where the church was packed full with people, young people, people in grief and pain, that the minister presiding over the funeral challenged all of us who were listening and said, look, I know you're feeling all kinds of difficult and hard things and you might, might want to shake your fist at God and turn your back on him. But he, he challenged us with this. He said, where else are you going to turn? And he was right. He wasn't reflecting on this word of Peter, but he just as well could have been. Because obviously that's what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we turn? Where else can we go? Sure, we can turn to anger and bitterness. We can turn to money and success. We can turn to accomplishments. We can turn to science and to reason. We can turn to knowledge and to beauty. But these turnings will be futile in the end in their ability to bring anything substantial to address the need and ache that every one of us knows in our soul. And here's the reality. We will turn to something. We will. We will believe in something. We will worship something. We were made that way. And we cannot help but do that. So why not Jesus? Who else had such an impact upon the world? Who else has God come down in the flesh? Who else lived in such a way as to transform history? Whose life and teaching has led to the foundation of the human rights that our culture today holds so dear and yet struggles to find a foundation for? Whose followers have established schools to educate and hospitals to care for the least and the lonely? These features that we take for granted in our culture, these are rooted in the words of the word of life, the bread of life, Jesus. We can run so hard after so many things which will disappear when we turn the corner. Jesus, the bread of life, is the only sure and firm foundation on which to build our lives. Will we turn to Him? I pray that we will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, the bread of life. We worship, praise, and adore you. And we humble ourselves in your presence. To whom shall we go, O oh Lord? You know, you know for each one of us where we try to turn. You know what we seek life in. Oh Lord, how we pray that you would turn call us to turn to you and to you alone for life. That we would seek you and stand with you and bear witness to you faithfully that your spirit might bring more and more to life and bring us even to deeper life. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, and we ask this that you might be glorified throughout Boston, our nation, and our world. Amen.